chapter 11, and we'll read from verse 33 in just a wee second. Um, as Adam said earlier, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, if you pop your hand up, our stewards would be happy to bring one to you uh, so you can follow along. Our lead pastor, Paul, is preaching away today, so we're finishing off our, uh, five-part uh, five series on the five solas, or the five onlys of the Reformation. And maybe you're wondering, what is this Reformation? Why is it a big deal? Well, the Reformation was a movement of God 500 years ago, through which uh, I like to think of as God restoring the church to factory settings. I don't know if you've ever had a, an iPad or a device or something go wrong. It just wasn't functioning properly. Maybe you had some kind of update corrupted it or something like that. And the only solution to it is to restore it to factory settings. Well, you could say that that's what the Reformation was for the church. The church back then, in various ways, especially in relation to the gospel, the heart and soul of what God is all about, uh, it had become corrupt and the church just wasn't working properly. Now, Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, um, diagnosed the problem. He said that the church was in curvatus in se, turned in on itself. And he said this, when you consider the practices of the church, it is plain to see our sinful nature is so curved in on itself that it bends the best gifts of God towards itself, uses God himself to attain these gifts, and wickedly seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. You might say for its own glory. That's what the church back then was doing. They'd made the gospel all about them, and in doing so, had robbed God of the glory that belonged to him alone. So they claimed, for example, that their leader had as much authority as the Bible. What he said mattered just as much as what God said. They claimed that to be right with God, you needed merit. You could either pray for it or you could pay for it. Forgiveness back then had a price tag. They claimed that justification of being made right with God was a participatory thing where God could make you righteous through the things that you did, like penance. But Luther, among many others, over a few decades and in various places, protested and straighten things out. He said, the gospel is not ultimately about us. It's about God. The highest purpose is God's own glory. That's why these guys taught what we believe today, that scripture alone is our highest authority, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's why for us, the Reformation matters. God has restored his glory to its rightful place in the church and made that glory the chief end that we pursue in everything. Now, I want to show you today that that is utterly important, not just at an ecclesiastical level, a church-wide level, but a personal level for all of us. And I want to show you that from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. You see, this is why this is important for us. Uh, not just in politics, not just in church tradition. You see, the Bible says that we are all in curvatus in se, turned in on ourselves. And we have a tendency to pursue what glorifies us the most. We love making much of ourselves. And the Apostle Paul has something to say about that. He's writing here 
um, at the end of 11 chapters on the gospel of God. And chapters 1 to 319 starts us off with the bad news. There's no one righteous, not even one. Everyone is under God's wrath. Jew, Gentile, everybody. And then chapter 3, verse 20 to chapter 4 tells us the good news that God has made a way despite our inability. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Then chapters 58 give us this glorious assurance that God is transforming us and readying us for glory. Even though we struggle with suffering, even though we struggle with sin, he's hard at work in us by his spirit. And then chapters 9 to 11 reflect on God's plan of how he orchestrated even his people's rejection of him, his Old Testament people, in order to accomplish redemption for all nations, not just one, again through faith in Jesus Christ. And having reflected on the extent of the gospel in these 11 chapters, he cannot contain himself and he says this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, you have written in your words, this is the one whom I will esteem, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. Uh, humble us today and help us to revere your word by listening, heeding, loving, and responding. May you be glorified in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's walk through this passage today uh, and see why God alone deserves the glory in everything. And if you're taking notes, we have two main points. Uh, one, salvation is all of God, and two, all glory belongs to God. Simple. One, uh, salvation is all of God. What we see in these verses is that salvation is all of God, and it's perfectly planned by him according to what he perfectly knows. And that's what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he marvels at God's mind and God's plans, right? Oh, your mind, he says. You see that in verse 33? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's reflecting here on just how amazing it is how much God knows. Uh, in 1521, Ferdinand Magellan, in the process of leading some of the first ships to circumnavigate the globe, um, he, he attempted to sound the depths of the central Pacific Ocean, just trying to figure out what's going to be a safe passage. And what he did was he tied six lengthy lines together and attached them to a cannonball and lowered the cannonball until the line ran out. It went down to 400 fathoms, or about 2,400 feet. Now, he still didn't hit the bottom, so Magellan concluded that the ocean was immeasurably deep, literally unfathomable, Okay. Now, with the help of sonar, we know that it's not. And if you've been watching Blue Planet 2, they've got a sub down there, and you can see that it's not, right? But it's not unfathomable, as Magellan thought, but the knowledge of God is. The knowledge of God is. When it comes to measuring what God knows, we're like sailors in a rowboat, tying pieces of rope together, finding ourselves completely wowed at his depth. 
And Paul says more than that, of course. There's not only a depth to the Lord's knowledge, but a wealth to it too. Uh, he's rich in knowledge. It's not going to run out anytime soon. Imagine that. We, there is a measurement that we can put on someone's wealth. For example, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos is the world's richest person just now, but his billions are like change rattling in a beggar's cup compared to the richness of the wealth of God's knowledge. But Paul reflects in this passage not only on how amazing it is what the Lord knows, it's, he reflects on how amazing it is what the Lord does with this knowledge. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it, right? Packer says, wisdom is the power to see, the inclination to choose, the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. And that's what God has done. That's what the entire book of Romans is all about. This is what the gospel of God is all about. The good news of how God saves sinners who cannot save themselves. For those who have fallen short of his glory and for whom the wages of their sin is death. Well, Paul describes how God achieved this salvation, won it for them through the cross, how Jesus made the impossible possible, that people can be made righteous and ready to meet God. And Paul looks back on what God knew and did and how God went about doing it, his knowledge and his wisdom, and just says, oh, oh, oh your mind, oh, your mind. But then he goes on to say in the second half of verse 33, Oh, your plans, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, he's reflecting on this. Saying, it's just amazing what the Lord has orchestrated throughout history. As Paul looks into all that God has done, decided and enacted, he's utterly wowed by it. To send his own son to provide for us. The very thing that God demanded of us righteousness, to widen his saving arms just as he promised to embrace not just one people but all peoples? I mean, who could have imagined it? Who would have dreamed it up? Who would have guessed what amazing things God has done and is doing? This verse, of course, is the, the New Testament version of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you ever stop to wonder at these realities, friends? To think about it for yourselves. The mind of God. To be wowed by it. The plans of God. To be wowed by them. You ever look back at the scope of history laid out in our Bible, seeing the threads of the Old Testament prophecies and promises and types converge in Jesus Christ? It's amazing. Do you ever look at your own life with wonder that God drew you to himself with a million different little threads and reflect on his mind and his plan in doing so? It's amazing. Isn't it strange to see such clever control and such wisdom and knowledge laid out and yet still sometimes in our own heart of hearts wonder, you know, does God really know what he's doing in this particular situation that I'm in? 
I mean, there are so many things in, that happen in life, let's face it, that make us wonder. There's heartache, there's death, there's suffering. Let me ask you, if you reflected on these verses, how do they change what you think? How do they make you feel? What do these verses say to you about the mind and the plans of God? Doesn't God know what he's doing? Can we trust him even if his plans seem inscrutable to us? I mean, we don't see things clearly. We see things dimly, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, like a poor reflection in a grubby mirror. But one day we'll know fully, even as we are, by God, fully known. But until then, until we have that kind of knowledge and that kind of awareness, will we humble ourselves to say, Oh, your mind, Lord, oh, your plans. Paul says salvation is all of God, that it's perfectly planned by him. And then he says it's perfectly planned by him without man's help. It's what he goes on to say in verse 34. He says, basically, uh, when he says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He's saying, nobody has made any contribution to God's thinking on this thing called the gospel. No one suggested anything to enhance God's plan. Nobody, nobody had to say, oh, I know, I know. Instead of sending a prophet to talk about your salvation, why don't you send your son? You know, there was no point where God ever went, oh, angel, that's a good idea. That never happened. No one had to say, oh, I know. Instead of leaving him dead in the tomb, why don't you raise him from the dead? Oh, I see where you're going. No, doesn't happen that way. No, salvation comes from the deep, rich mind of God, and he doesn't need anyone to advise him on what he should be doing. And again, pause. Isn't it strange that that's what we sometimes do? We sometimes become God's advisors, even in prayer. Lord, I have an idea. I know how you should run the world. Or sometimes it comes in the form of a question, Lord, why did you do it this way? Wouldn't it have been much more sensible to do it like this way? Friends, if we find ourselves saying those kind of things, this really is confirmation for us that we are incurvatus in sea, turned in on ourselves. And who are we to give advice to God? God is not thick. God has no deficiency in his learning. Do you know why? He's never learned a thing. He's never learned anything. He's never needed to. He never will. He is eternally, no beginning, no end, exactly who he is. And he has never needed anything from us. He doesn't do these things out of some kind of deficiency in himself. In Acts 17, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So think of how it sounds to him when human beings offer him advice or some. Uh, maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. We offer these kind of sayings to him. If you don't do this, then I've had it with you or I won't believe in you. Friends, in salvation, God has done what we would have done if we knew everything that he knew. 
So Paul says nobody has made a contribution to his thinking on salvation, on the gospel. But he also goes on to say in verse 34 that nobody has contributed anything at all to God's salvation, nothing material. Who has ever given to God, verse 34, that God should repay him? God doesn't owe anyone anything, any payment, any credit for this gospel, this salvation. Why? Because salvation is all of God's. We contributed nothing except the sin that condemned us. He contributed everything. It's his plan, hatched, as Ephesians 1 said, in eternity before the creation of the world. He contributed everything we needed himself in the person of his son for our salvation. So with this question, Paul is stating clearly, God is no man's creditor. Uh, we are not God's creditors. He is ours. He's the one who blesses us with what we need. So Paul says salvation is all of God, perfectly planned by him without God's help. And then he says everything is by him and for him. You see this in verse 36, from him and through him and for him are all things. That, that is an absolutely incredible statement to make. From him. God is the source of all things. That's why we read in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. From untouched, unseen galaxies to mitochondria, everything in between, bigger, smaller, who knows what we know, is from him. He is the source of all things. And all things come through him. He is the agent and the sustainer of all things. Colossians 1 tells us this about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is before all things, there's a source, and he is, and in him all things hold together. In other words, if he was to take his hands off the wheel for a nanosecond in all of creation, everything would crash. And then to him, or for him, that God himself is the end of all things, the reason why things exist. He is the one for whom and to whom everyone and everything is headed, which tells us then that the universe and everything in it is fundamentally and ultimately about the glory of God. This is the great reason for all existence, including ours. So when you watch Blue Planet 2 and you see a fish with fins that just look a little bit like feet, and they talk about, wow, isn't this the wonder of evolution? You say, no, 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 Mr. Attenborough. Isn't God glorious? Yes? Everything is made by him, designed by him. Evolution, why is it not out of the water? Anyway, that's... Um, now, I, I detect an objection in relation to all this, right? When you talk about God's glory, when you talk about all things being made uh, by him, through him, for him, that he is the end of all things, that God's glory is the highest goal in all the universe for all things, there's a question, right? It is how come that making much of yourself is a vice for us and a virtue for him? 
Isn't God just some kind of egomaniac, you know, who just needs to be stroked by people? And, I mean, that's why he made us. Is that, isn't that the case? Or he's overly enamored with himself. And we understand the question because we don't like people like that, okay? We don't like people who blow their own trumpets. We don't like people who walk around with selfie sticks for more than one reason. Um, you know, we, we don't like people who make much of themselves, we don't like, we often think that people who boast in themselves are actually quite insecure. But that's not what God is when he makes much of himself. He's not insecure about himself. He's not needing affirmation. I read earlier from the Acts 17 passage. He doesn't need anything from us. This is what's called the doctrine of aseity. He isn't needed. He doesn't need a thing from us. He is entirely self-sufficient, as proved by this, the, by his self-sufficiency in eternity before he even spoke the world into being. But think about this: if he is indeed the highest, most glorious being in all existence then the most excellent thought that our minds could consider is him. And if our satisfaction was entirely tied up with understanding who he is, then God is the one and only being in the whole universe for whom seeking his glory is the only ultimately loving act and the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate right thing to do. from him, through him, for him. Let's think about this in relation to salvation. That was the issue in the Reformation. That is the issue in the, gospel, in the book of Romans. Salvation is from him. That's why salvation is said to belong to him throughout scripture. He owns the copyright. No one can co-author it. No one co-attains it. No one is a is a participant in it. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, God's salvation plan was drawn up in Christ alone before the creation of the world. It's from him, through him. Salvation was achieved through him. It's entirely his work. In love, verse 5 of chapter 1 in Ephesians says, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And all things are to him, even in salvation. Saving us right up there in God's plan, but saving us was not the ultimate reason for God saving us. Glorifying himself was. This is what Ephesians 1 says. I'll put these verses together. Uh, God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, in love predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of what? His glorious grace repeated three times for dimwits like me just so we don't miss it. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. So what? Right, so what? If all things are from him, through him, and for him, so what? Point two. All glory belongs to God. 
And if all glory belongs to God, then we are robbing him of his glory if we claim credit for anything. That's why we need to stop seeking our own glory. You see, we are all incurvatus in sea. I'm milking that, haven't I? We're all turned in on ourselves. We're all, we all put ourselves at the center of the universe. Oh, we just need to look back over the last couple of hours to see that, don't we? Let's not argue about that. We're like Nebuchadnezzar. Andy Patterson preached on Nebuchadnezzar a few weeks ago, didn't he? Nebuchadnezzar was this ancient king in Daniel 4. In Babylon, he's taken a stroll on the roof of his royal palace, surveying this grand city. It was epic, right? I mean, historians can tell us. Archaeologists can tell us. It was epic. And he's walking around, and he's saying, all this is by me and for me. By my mighty power, he says. For the glory of my majesty, he says. Now, do you see what Nebuchadnezzar did? It's, it's, it's plagiarism at the highest level. It's claiming credit for someone else's work. Because it wasn't all by him and for him. It was by God and for him. But we do the very same thing as Nebuchadnezzar. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 gets us to reflect on this. And then he asks us these questions. What, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as, you, as if you have not had? As if you had not received it. Like, are you good at football? Are you the fastest player on the team? Yeah, who gave you those legs? Like, you do well in your maths homework? You passed your, passed your weekly tests? Good. Who gave you that brain? You know, are you an encourager? Do you find that people are encouraged by the things that you say to them? Well, that's wonderful. Uh, but let's not boast in ourselves. Uh, do you know, I'm quite good at encouragement. No, see, thank the Lord. What a gift he's given me. For from him and through him and for him are all things. Even that gift, even that brain, even those legs. Why do you boast as if you had not received it now? If you're here today, you're not a Christian, um, I'd love to talk some more about this. I just think 25 minutes on this so far is, is just too short. It's a subject. Man alive, I'm bursting to tell you all of the cuttings I've left on my study floor this week. Um, they're fighting me from behind for inclusion. Um, this is huge. This is why you exist. And I'm not sure you know that. Because our world, our culture is designed to put us at the center of all things. We need a Copernican shift. You know Nicholas Copernicus? You know, 500 odd years ago, 600 years ago, the world was all just putting their arms around their kids and pointing up to the sun and saying, look, everything revolves around us. But Copernicus kind of tapped everybody in the shoulder and said, uh, I'm sorry, and he pointed up to the sun and said, we revolve around that. There was a huge shift in everyone's thinking. That's the kind of shift that we need in our thinking in relation to God and why we exist. We, you, friends, are actually from him, through him, by his common grace, by his kindness sustaining you, though you don't acknowledge him. 
and you're created for him, and all the while you're not living for him, you're living against him and robbing him of glory. You see that? It's plagiarism. In your life, you're claiming credit for all the things that God has given you, and ultimately, you will never be truly happy. You will never find true satisfaction until you find your satisfaction in him saying, oh, your mind, oh, your plans, oh, your son, oh, his cross, oh, this redemption, oh, this gospel, I believe in you. Speak to someone about that today. I'll be at the door afterwards. Uh, grab one of the stewards. They can point you in the direction of someone, and there'll be a prayer team down here who'll be happy to chat to you about this and pray with you about it. You need to do a Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, the end of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't, he didn't just claim, rob God of his glory. Uh, he, he suffered for it. He was judged because of it. God disciplined him in a way to, to wake him up to his error. And what he was, had to do was to turn his gaze away from himself and lift his eyes to heaven. And that's what he did. To say sorry for robbing God of his glory, to praise him with his heart and his mouth, he said, this man who once said, all this is by me and for me, said, I praise the most high, I honor and glorify him who lives forever. May that be your, may that be your the words that come out of your mouth today. Everyone in this place who has turned to Christ ultimately has said that. So stop seeking your glory. It all belongs to him. And instead, give him all the glory in everything. That's how Paul finishes off, doesn't he? In verse 36, to him be the glory forever. How? How do we glorify God's? How do we glorify God's? Well, how do we glorify him as a church? Well, one of the ways you can do that is actually by taking your stand on these crucial Reformation teachings, by maintaining that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as taught with authority in the Bible alone, ensuring that God gets the glory alone, to insist on it. To have a quiet word with me or one of the elders if we err from that or stray from that and sack me if I don't repent of it. It's too important. Now, what about as individuals? How do we glorify God? If our life has the highest purpose in that the purpose of, that we have in everything, in everyday life, in the big things and in the tiny little things is the glory of God, then Life matters. Mundane things matter. It floods everything with meaning for us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it in a way that shows that you treasure him. You know, eat with glad hearts. You know, that's the mark of ungodliness in Romans 1, right? They neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him. So glorify him with gratitude. God, so at lunchtime today, Lord, we glorify you. We're going to eat and drink to your glory right now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay? Enjoy food to his glory. Even if it's a wee bit burnt. 
It's so simple. Make decisions for the glory of God with this end in mind. It revolutionizes everything. Takes everything away from, mm, I really want to oh, really watch the rugby today. You know, or this was me yesterday. I really, how can we watch? No, no, it's all about glorifying God in everything, in the tiny little decisions. How do we glorify him? How do we respond to criticism for the glory of God? How do we respond to bad news from a doctor, from a friend to, for the glory of God? How do we deal with relational tensions to the glory of God? How do we play football to the glory of God? Use our words to the glory of God? Ultimately, in all these things, we glorify God by loving him, don't we? By loving him as our, and enjoying him as our primary treasure. That's what the Westminster Confession says, isn't it? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And enjoy him forever Enjoying him, loving him, is a way of glorifying him. And it touches everything. So we glorify God by treasuring him above all things and then making the kind of choices in the everyday things which make the joy that we have in him really, really obvious to people so that people in our church family are mutually encouraged and that people who are not glorify the Lord God too. That's his plan. That's why we say, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, your mind. Oh, oh, your plans. So give him, give him glory. And lastly, give him your O's. Give him your O's. We can't miss out the fact that Paul starts off this whole section having reflected on what the gospel is by saying, oh, <laughs> oh, it's just too wonderful for him. There aren't enough O's. Now, Paul has just talked theology for a whole 11 chapters, and some of it is, what? I need to go back and read that again, and actually read it another seven or eight times. We need to study it in small groups for a good hour to try and figure out what some of these things say, right? We've been looking at Romans already in our growth groups. And you study these things and they're amazing. They're, they're deep theology, but they're meant to be deeply felt. You know, theology that's not felt, Bible truth that's not felt is just cold, dead orthodoxy. It doesn't save anybody. You're meant to feel it. It's meant to move you. I love that Paul just goes, oh, he just talked about some of the most difficult things in all of Scripture in chapters 9 to 11. And he's just like, oh, to God be glory forever and ever, is what he says. So this stuff, similarly, I believe, should make our hearts burst and our mouths sing. I'm surprised that no one has already interrupted me by bursting out with praise God from whom all blessings flow. I'm a slightly upset. <laughs> I mean, God's glory in salvation, as outlined here, is, is just utterly praiseworthy. It should make us put off stuffiness, raise those hands, shed those tears, shake that head in wonderment, and cry out, hallelujah. Yes. O 
all the depths when I think of what you know. All the depths when I think of what you've done. All your grace. When I think of what I've done. All those wounds. All your son, when I think of what he's done. All your promise, free from sin and suffering, the new heaven and the new earth. All your face, when we see it. All the depths and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, good, I gave you all permission to do it that way. Keep this in your mind. Salvation is all of God, so give him all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray.